It's no secret that the pilot wife lifestyle can be lonely, filled with anxiety and uncertainty. Holidays, special events are spent by ourselves without our special pilot there to experience those celebrations with us. And the lack of the ability to long-term plan. How do we deal with this, especially if we have no prior experience in the aviation world? Well, my guest today wrote the book, literally. Joining me on today's show is Peyton Garland, who's a writer, wannabe rapper, and coffee shop hopper who loves connecting people to a grace much bigger than expected. Her debut book, Not So By Myself, was promoted by former White House Press Secretary Dana Perino and endorsed by TED Talk speaker Hannah Brincher. When Peyton's not writing, she's exploring Colorado with her husband, Josh, the pilot, and their two gremlin dogs, Alfie and Daisy. Welcome to the Pilot Wife Podcast, your ongoing checklist for navigating your best life as a pilot wife and aviation family. I'm your co-captain, Jackie Elmer. I've been a pilot wife for over three decades and can't imagine any other lifestyle. On the show, you'll hear stories, experiences, tips, advice, interviews with other pilot wives, pilots, aviation professionals, non-revving and travel experts also on this journey. Yes, it's a mixed bag of goods, but what life isn't? I'm here to bring you the best that the aviation life has to offer. If you have a topic suggestion, a story to share on the show, details are at the end. And if you want the Pilot Wife Survival Guide and Checklist, go to pilotwifechecklist.com. Now, stow your baggage, strap in, and let's unpack the Pilot Wife life. So Peyton, so nice to have you here on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Me too. And I know this topic and this and your book and everything is going to be so well received. Just, um, you know, we met on some of the Facebook pages that for Pilot Wives and, you know, just like I do the, you know, the constant questions that are being asked. And as we're recording this, it's right at the holidays. So there's the holiday anxiety. I'm going to be alone or what if I'm alone or, you know, all of this. So it, your, your, your book, your topic, all of it's so on point. And I know that it's going to help so many people and that's awesome. Thank you. So tell us about you and a little bit of your background prior to aviation. Well, prior to aviation, I got my degree in English. So words were always my thing. Um, I didn't know they were actually my thing though, until I failed out of my first pre-med class in college. And so, yeah, we we took a a wrong turn, but eventually I pursued literature and words. And so writing for me and sharing my story has always been super important to me. And it's the way I've always built community. So when I met my pilot, I was actually a news reporter for a local paper and I loved my job. It was hectic. There were some 5 a.m. Hey, there was a car wreck on the side of the road sort of things that I had to be at. But life was very busy. I was writing. I was thriving. And at the time, my husband, well, you know, boyfriend then, he was not in aviation. He was a sales rep for the Atlanta Falcons NFL team. So when he and I first got married, he had a nine to five job. It was very rhythmic. I had a routine. I knew exactly when to start dinner. I knew exactly when he was going to be home. The weekends were ours. The holidays were ours. And six months into us being married, 
All of that changed when he came home one day out of the blue and said, Hey, babe, I think I want to be a pilot. Wow. So, so do you live in Atlanta? So we used to live in Atlanta. We now live in Colorado, just south of the Springs, oh. um, because my husband is actually training Air Force pilots and the Air Force academies out here. So that is what he's up to right now. Oh, very cool. I'm from Durango originally. So I'm a Colorado. Oh, girl. wonderful. Yeah. I'm in Fountain right now. Beautiful. Yeah. We love it. Yes. Yes. Nice. Okay. So that gives us a lot. So, um, so obviously you are not prepared for the aviation pilot lifestyle. No, I, I wasn't prepped at all. I think I am a military brat. So my dad was in the army. So I was used to the man of the house being gone, but I did always have my mother and my sister. So even though dad was gone, somebody was there and, you know, being the wife, we, we don't have kids yet. We just gotten married. We just adopted two terrible, but super cute dogs. So when he is gone for work, it's just me. There is no mom. There is no sister. It's very, very quiet. I have all the responsibilities, you know, I mean, he literally is in the sky. He doesn't even have cell phone service. So if something happens, it's on me to take care of it. Yeah. Okay. So then he came home and said, I think I want to be a pilot. So, so then what were his next steps? What did he do to, um, earn all of his certifications? So what he decided to do, he, he thought on it for several months, which I thought was wise. I said, Hey, look, that's great, but you've never mentioned airplanes in your whole life. You got your degree in business and sports management. Like this technically was your dream job. So before you drop this, let's make sure this is what you actually want to do. So he watched a ton of YouTube videos. He ended up bumping into a family friend of ours who is an international pilot for Delta. And so he got to talk to that pilot and it really stirred him to move forward with this. So he ended up going to school through ATP, which is an advanced get all your certs in nine months sort of thing. So he actually, from the day he came home and said, hey, babe, I want to be a pilot. In about a year and a half, he'd actually gotten all the certifications. Wow. Wow. And while working full time. So what he ended up having to do, I'm so glad you brought that up. So with this being more of an advanced speedy type course, they did say, Hey, when, when you come on, you can't have a full-time job. We actually don't even recommend a part-time job. You are kind of going back to that high school phase where you're in school, 8 AM, 4 PM, go home, study, be back tomorrow. So I ended up working three jobs for about a year and a half to get him through school. So lots of, lots of financial stressors, lots of emotional stress. I was not sleeping as much. I was balancing more all while still only having been married for six to 10 months. You're a trooper. You win an award. I'm just <laughs> going to say, I don't know if anybody's given you one, but I'm giving you one right Thank now. Thank you so much. If I could award, I don't know what the equivalent of knighthood is for females, but I'm going to knight you. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I will take it with honor. There you go. Okay. So then he goes through the, about a year and a half, he has everything. And then what in terms of employment? So after that, you, you know, even after you finish flight school, you don't have your 1500 hours to actually get to an airline and the airline was his goal. And so naturally the next step for him was to be a flight instructor. It was an easy way to get hours. It was a paycheck, but we were in Georgia at the time. And when he finished flight school, ATP, which is where he not only got his certs, but was going to be an instructor said, Hey, there aren't any airports in Georgia available for an instructor. 
Um, none in Florida, none in Alabama, none in Tennessee, none in Kentucky, but we do have something in Indiana. So up and off he goes to Indiana and I have to hold down the fort in Georgia. And what was so wild is just one month before he gets to go for Indiana, we had just moved north of Atlanta for me to start a new job. So this is the first time I was ever away from my family. I was at a new job, so I didn't know my coworkers. I didn't know my neighbors. I knew nobody except my husband, Josh. And now he's states and states away, and it's just me. Wow. Okay, so keep going. Then what? <laughs> so, so then he's gone, you know, from, from a 20,000-foot view, quite literally. It was about four months, which doesn't sound terrible. It's one of those things where it's like, you, you can suck it up and deal with it. And that's what I thought. I was like, this is going to be short term. This is just until something in Georgia opens up. We can do this. But I am a perfectionist. I like for all my ducks to be in a row. I like to know what's coming so I can prepare for it. And this was the first season in my life where I wasn't prepared and my life literally turned on its head, you know, in see, in high school, I was the valedictorian of my graduation class. In college, I was known as the only girl in my sorority who was a virgin. Like I, I had all these little gold stars and everyone thought I was cute and doing all the things. And so I didn't think this season would be that hard until it was. And so I spent the next three to four months literally rediscovering what it means to not be perfect what it means to give yourself grace so you can give other people grace, what it means to actually communicate with your pilot, because I thought we communicated well before we did not. We, we had to learn a lot about communication when it's not face to face. And so I spent three to four months just almost peeling back all these layers of perfection and standards that were impossible at this point and, and giving myself the freedom to mess up in a new season. Okay. Are you a one on the Enneagram? I am a one. That's on what the I Enneagram. thought. I know yes, today man. is the day just for anybody listening. It's episode 11. And today is the day that, that, that we're recording this, that that episode dropped. And so we've all, you know, everybody who's listened and taken it has been weighing in. And it was kind of funny just as we got on, I thought, oh, I know she posted um, what her Enneagram was. And then the minute you said that, I was like, right, yep. a one. Oh, yes, ma'am. You are. To, I am. So I took a test one time that showed the actual percentage you are of each number. 98% a one, like every fiber in my being centers on perfection and performance. And I'm probably that as a three, probably oh, 98%. Sure. Josh is a three. Yes. I yes. remember you saying that now. And didn't you say he's like the three is three? Oh, he is the three is three there ever was. He's an achiever and he wants to do things well at all times. Oh boy. We should meet <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's so funny. I love that. I mean, Oh, there's just so that's just so rich. There's so many places we can go with all that, but this is a different show. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, so we did all that. Then, then take us quickly. Cause I want to get into the book, but take us quickly how you got from there to now Colorado Springs and training at the air force Academy. Right. So he was a flight instructor and bless his heart. That's the Georgia and me bless his heart three or four months into him becoming a flight instructor. COVID hit. He was the new guy, bottom of the totem pole at this new base in Georgia when he finally did get to come home. And he and 50% of the instructors there were sent home. And they just said, hey, look, we don't need you. Nobody's flying right now. 
And so for three or four months, we went from not seeing each other to we are way up under each other. So that was a whole nother lesson as well. But what he did is he ended up doing some flight instructing again at Auburn University in Alabama, which was great. But when the Air Force, that opportunity came up, we actually honeymooned in Colorado and Breckenridge and we loved it. And we always joked like, no, really, we would love to live there one day. So when the opportunity came up, it was more structured than a university style flight instructing. It had better benefits. The military takes very good care of him. And it let us go back to Colorado. So for us, it was a no brainer. You know, we don't have any kiddos yet. So it wasn't picking up school districts or worrying anything about that. So it was nice to just come out here on a one-year contract and adventure and let him work with the Air Force. I love that. That's so cool. That's so cool. So I'm going to digress really quickly because as a three myself, (laughs) how did he deal? How was that for him? Not only just with COVID, but then to be not able to achieve and perform, like to be sent home without kind of your purpose in terms of your career and your job. How, How was that? It crushed him. And, and I am a one wing two. And so there's a very, very, very soft side of me that tends to absorb emotions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, he was devastated. It was one of those things where he, he not only had just gotten there, he had just finished flight school. He had just gotten home to Georgia. Like we were there and a month later done, go home. We, we don't know when COVID's going to end. We don't know when we're going to fly again. And so he was wrestling, you know, questions like everyone else, because obviously a pandemic's not normal. So he had all the normal anxieties that anyone else had on top of, will there be a career for me on the other side of this? Will aviation tank period? Will it come back? Clearly it's not right now because I'm at home without a job. And, and, you know, as a three who wants to achieve and wants to do well, he literally was at, that was, that's probably the lowest I've ever seen him. And it took a lot of, again, learning even more about communicating with each other, because I think as the husband, he felt like he was failing me, like he wasn't providing or he wasn't, I was able to work from home. And I think he felt guilt that I was bringing something to the table while he necessarily wasn't. I literally just had three jobs for a year and a half to help him out. And so I think he absorbed the fact that I was tired and he felt like he was dumping that back on me. So that season was incredibly hard for him. Um, but, but I will say this, he doesn't like to brag and he's very quiet about it, but he did just totally kill an interview with Endeavor Airlines a month ago. And he starts with them next summer. And so it's so beautiful. Like the beauty from ashes of it all is he's worked so hard and his dream is just around the corner. So, so we are celebrating. We have a poster hanging up in our house now with the dog's paw prints, my handwriting, big congratulations. And he has not taken it down yet. So we're very excited in the Garland household. I love that. Congratulations. Definitely. That's very exciting. I I love that. Oh, it's going to be so fun to watch the journey for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, um, tell us about what inspired your book. That season of loneliness when he was gone for three or four months, he came home around mid-January and I told him, I said, I just feel led to share this story. I learned so much about myself. Um, I am a woman of faith. I learned a lot about my faith. I learned a lot about my mental health. I actually started going to therapy in this season, which is a one, I felt like a total failure needing help. 
but I went and it was working. And I just, I kept talking to him about it over and over. And he finally said, Hey babe, if you don't shut up and write this book, I don't know what I'm going to do. Just write the thing. And so I said, oh, okay, you know, whatever. So I, I scribbled out some title ideas, had a few chapters in mind, and, and it kind of started piecing itself together at such a wild time because I actually started writing it three weeks before COVID hit. And so not only did I now have no excuse as far as, oh, I don't have time to write a book, I am stuck at home, but also now the whole world, like an international level, everyone's experiencing loneliness. And so it just turned into such this, this blessing, this miracle to say, Hey, I've kind of already been through it. Here's what I've learned. And I would love to share that with you and hopes that you don't trudge through this season in the crash and burn sort of way that I did. Yeah. Oh, that's, I love that. Yeah. Oh, such a, such a, well, there are no coincidences and I'm a person of faith. So it's kind of like, you know, we could go down that, but it's like, no, everything happens for a reason and right right timing and all of that. So that, that, that's awesome. And I remember saying so many times when I would wake up in the morning in the midst of it, like when you think about it, like with the exception of those people who are out in, you know, the Aborigines and that kind of thing and tribes in Africa, probably every single person who wakes up first thing in the morning, we are all thinking about the same thing right? globally. That's kind of heavy. <laughs> right. Exactly. When you really think about that, it's kind of heavy, but For interesting. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, definitely collectively brought us together, even though right. very right. Separated. it built a, a community we never anticipated. Right. Right. Exactly. And I'd like it to go away, but that's another. <laughs> sure. Right. So tell us a little bit, um, you know, we have a tendency, especially for you as a more newly wed, we have a tendency to think that once we get married, um, that person is our person and they're going to fulfill everything. And we don't tend to think about loneliness, especially earlier on in a marriage coming into play. So talk to us a little bit about what that looks like. What is loneliness in a marriage and and a young marriage too? Right. I, you know, I come from Georgia and in the good old South, most women are married by 21, two or three kids by 25. I, I was the old maid of the group. I didn't get married until I was almost 24, which just blew people's minds. (laughs) So for me, I had waited and waited and waited And so I reached this pinnacle. I'm like, it's my turn. It is me. People will stop asking me when I'm going to get married. I made it. And six months later, I'm thinking, this is some pinnacle. Like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I like. Like, just being totally vulnerable. I did not like it. I was very angry and very agitated in this season. And I I guess what I realized was loneliness for me was actually loneliness and not just solitude. So as a newlywed wife with him being gone, it wasn't just, oh, Peyton, you're by yourself. Let's, let's find ways to, to maximize your creativity, to maximize the opportunities to get coffee with friends and do things you can't always do balancing the home life. I was lonely because I wasn't content with myself. And what I quickly learned is all those monsters I'd shoved in the back of my closet, all the things I'd never wanted to deal with in my life, I now had no choice but to deal with them because there were no distractions. The house was quiet. There was no noise. There was no one to talk to. And I finally had to deal with me. And I think that lack of contentment is where the actual loneliness came from. And so um, 
I have a bunch of different places I want to go with this. So I'm trying to come up with the best one, like (laughs) continue down the route of questions that I have or deviate. I think I'm going to deviate and just ask you, um, the book is not so by myself is the title, right? Can you walk us through the chapters and and tell us a little bit about like the content that's in there in terms of the chapter? Yeah. Absolutely. So I open it chapter. There's a few chapters that seem to be fan favorites. Like people find me on Instagram or the ones that make them laugh. So I'll kind of hit the highlights, but it opens with a chapter called dog park drama. And it's the first time I finally said, okay, Josh is gone. Peyton, you've got to get out of the house. Just, just go because you don't like sitting in the quiet. You don't like being in the dark. Let's just distract ourselves. So I thought dog park loud, furry, fluffy, cute, drooly, anything but Peyton by herself at home. So I take my two dogs, Alfie and Daisy to the dog park. And Alfie decides that he is very attracted to a three-legged female dog there and proceeds to do what dogs do. Started a 50 dog pileup and we were never really allowed back at that dog park again. And so that was my first taste of, hey, Peyton, distractions don't work, go home. And so I open with kind of the toughest place my story started in where I finally had to say, you're going to have to sit with yourself. You're going to have to let your thoughts be something that are present and you're going to have to do something with them. So that's where it starts. So though it's kind of deep, it is quite hilarious because my dogs tend to do terrible, terrible things. They're just cute. So we keep them, but I also walk through I wanted to not just make it strictly a season of loneliness that was three or four months while my husband was gone. So I I hit everything from being single, um, being a woman in the church, because sometimes that's isolating. If you're not in a very healthy church culture as a woman, you're told to be quiet. It's not your place to speak. I talk a lot about my mental health and I was actually diagnosed with OCD when I went to therapy while my husband was gone. So I, I talk about the isolation mentally that mental health can give you when it's something that you're wrestling with or or you carry shame with. And so literally from a physical, mental, emotional, relational career type perspective, I hit on all of those points and what that looks like when you're lonely versus when you learn to say, Hey, I am not going to handle this season. Well, I am imperfect. And let's tap into that freedom to just say, I'm okay. It is okay to not handle this like a pro. Oh, can I just tell you, first of all, thank you so much for your A, vulnerability, B, your honesty, and C, bringing up the issue of mental health. Um, it's so stigmatized. Yeah. And I don't think as much with women, but certainly with women too, it's like, you know, we don't want people to think we're hysterical or, or you <laughs> crazy, know, crazy, you know, <laughs> or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's like, and I, I heard I was talking with um, a, a woman who focuses on pilot mental health who we're doing a show with, and and she really did a good job for me of making of really helping me understand the difference between mental health and mental illness. And and the the analogy she gave me was that when you if you get a cold, you're not healthy, right? If you have an autoimmune disorder or you're diagnosed with cancer, God forbid, or something like that, right. that's illness. Right. And it really, it, it, for me, it, it, that really helped, um, help me understand the difference. So I think it's important. And, and I, I really do want to continue to raise the awareness of that for people everywhere, especially through COVID, because I think it definitely right. raised 
made more people go, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? There must be something wrong with me for feeling this way or whatever. And even with, you know, in the pilot wife groups and stuff, people will post, gosh, you know, is it, is it just me? Like, why am I feeling this way? Why am I not able to get over it or, you know, deal with certain things? So I I really acknowledge you for bringing that to the forefront and saying, you know, I mean, having some mental health issues at the time don't mean that you're headed to the asylum in right. two months. You know what I mean? It just <laughs> exactly. means that you're dealing with some stuff and sometimes you can cope with it on your own and sometimes you need help and it's just unpacking and sorting things. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. I, I actually talk about that in one chapter of my book. Um, I come from a long line of military. I mean, two, three, three, four generations of military men and my family kind of adopted this concrete, tough, mantra that silence is strength. You're strong. If you don't say anything, you're strong. If you don't let people see your weak spot. But when Josh was gone, I, I didn't have a weak spot. I had a weak pulse. I I literally could tell that who I was, was slowly diminishing and, and spiraling too. And for me, I learned that silence actually is not strength. And that speaking up, that's where not only your freedom and healing comes from, but that's where you give other people the strength to find healing too. So we'll come back to the chapters, but one of the things that um, we've already talked about a little bit, especially as a one is the perfection um, tendency. And I think you address that a little bit in therapy and even going to the dog park that, you know, that you were going to have to deal with some things. So let's talk a little bit about um, your realization that perfectionism isn't going to work and kind of releasing some of that. That was tough. And I I think the first big dose of humility that made me just not just accept it, but, but recognize it, call it for what it was, was my first day of therapy because therapy isn't as stereotypical, you know, as the movies portray it, but that first day is, it is a woman sitting across from me with a pen and pad and I am spilling my guts and she's just writing everything down. And when I get to the end of the session, I'm like, oh, buddy your life has kind of been a mess the whole time. You were just really good at sweeping it under the rug and not saying a word. And that was the first time I I realized not only was perfection not going to work because I was at a therapist's office, it had never worked. So, and I think that's what changed the game for me was it, it never was something pivotal. It was never feeding anything positive. It was constantly feeding me shame. And it was feeding me this sense that I was isolated because I was the only one going through this, or I was the only one messing up that and showing up for therapy week after week to do the work that was key in me saying, yeah, just not perfect at all. Like there's a lot going on and not in just my brain, but in my marriage and how I see myself and how I see the church, I've got a lot of things to unpack. And so being willing to show up for that week after week. It not only kept my pride in check, but it kept reaffirming that perfection is just not going to be the winning game. So if you're comfortable sharing, talk to us a little bit about that work. Like you mentioned, unpacking it and the work that you had to do. Tell us a little bit about what that work consists of, because I really do feel like there are probably some people hanging on to these words going, what's the work? I want to do the work. I need to do the work. (laughs) Yeah. So my therapist started me on what's called brain spotting. And what you do is you literally find a 
a spot in the room, you know, spot brain spotting. And it's the space where your brain feels the most free, which sounds very like hippie one with the earth, but, but it happens. I like natural light. So every time I would go to her window and I would just find the sun and it would calm me down. And she would start with the biggest question that was on my mind that day. Like if it was with my marriage with Josh being gone, if it was with my mental health and how I was just not doing well that day, she would start asking questions and I start answering them. And it's, I guess it's because she's the one who went to school for it, but she knew how to ask questions in a way that funneled the problem down. And at the end of the session, I would go, oh, I'm not upset with Josh. This was my OCD triggered by that. And I have now been pouring that angst on him. And so brain spotting with a therapist was wonderful because week after week, I could start pinpointing and identifying what my triggers were, what my stressors were, and then not how to avoid my triggers, but to say, hey, that's a trigger and I'm going to deal with that in a healthy way. I don't have the time or energy to process this with anger and frustration and worry. And so brain spotting is what I did in house. But one of the neatest things she had me do when I was home, it felt very weird again at first. But she had me take a picture of myself when I was little, just find one. And I have one of me at the beach with my mom. I was about three or four. And she encouraged me to talk to my younger self and to tell her everything you wanted her to know. And and I still do that to this day sometimes. You know, I, I say, hey, Peyton, you're not going to be perfect and you are going to fall flat on your face, but you are okay. Your worth is not going to be defined by your mistakes. You will make it to the other side of this. You will still have favor with God. You will still be loved by your husband. People will still see you and be able to call you good. Like it, it, this is not a time for shame. And it was so weird. Psychologically talking to my younger self was almost healing the past in a way that I could move forward with who I am now and into the future. So that's one very, I don't know the funds, the word I usually ended up crying, um, one of the things I do at home slash did at home that works super well. And I'm also a big proponent of medication. I know in the church, a lot of people think if you, you're just not praying enough or you're not doing something right. I personally think it's a modern day miracle. And I proudly take my Zoloft every morning because it puts some serotonin in my body. So a big combination of things, but I definitely encourage people go talk to somebody. You know, I love the, um, inner child or the small child yeah. process. I, I've done that too. Um, and, and um, I, I think for me, the word was fascinating. I know you were used the word fun, but for me, it was fascinating yeah. to, to be able to go there. And, and once you start doing that work, it, 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 at first it's kind of like, Oh, is that going to be weird or awkward right. or like <laughs> <Right>. whatever? <laughs> but once you start doing it, I don't know about for you, but for me, it became like the most natural thing in the world because I know that person, that right. person is me. Uh, you know what I mean? But there yeah. was so much about that. That was powerful. Um, and so I, again, like you, I really encourage people to do that because it, it is really powerful. And it, it kind of takes you back to those wounds of childhood that all of us go through, you know, a bully on the playground, parents saying, oh, you know, you can't do that or you're not good enough, whatever it is. All of us have right. those different external influences that, that are those childhood wounds and to be able to stop and, and in quiet, unpack that and heal it. Um, is really powerful. Have you ever done any mirror work? 
I have not, but out here in Colorado in the Springs, there is a neuro specialty center where you can go and they put all these sticky things on your head. They show you some pictures of some things and it'll actually identify which parts of your brain are the most damaged by your OCD. So my husband and I are in the process of seeing how insurance pans out with that. And if it's a possibility, because I know with OCD, my frontal lobe doesn't process things correctly, but it would be very interesting and also beneficial to see exactly which parts of my brain are impacted because that would give us more of, I guess, more of an attack plan from a scientific perspective. Interesting. Wow. Good luck with that. You'll have to. <laughs> sure. I'll let you know how it goes. I will definitely send a picture because I just, I think it'd be yeah. very neat. Yeah, that'll be fun. <laughs> okay. So a word that you brought up a few times, um, that's one that I've studied. Have you, do you study Brené Brown at all? I do. Any, yes. Yeah. So the shame, mm-hmm. the word shame. Yeah. I didn't understand that word for a long time. I had to, I had to really spend a lot of time between shame and guilt And where do I feel shame? And what does that really look like? And it, I mean, I I really did. And that's probably the three in me going, ah, no, I don't have that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to acknowledge that. Um, But the more work I did on it, the more it became really fascinating. And I was able to finally unlock that piece. So talk to us a little bit about that word and its impact on you and, and dealing with some of that. Yeah. For me, guilt is kind of, it parallels your conscience. Like with guilt, it's kind of a pretty healthy warning of, Hey, you shouldn't have said that. Hey, that was a bad move. Hey, that was selfish. Hey, you should probably apologize for that. Guilt is very present day based on your actions. But for me in my life, shame was not present day. Shame picked up everything from my past and kept bringing it to me in the future. And shame wasn't always directly related to, to a bad action or a poor action. Shame for me tended to come from other voices, which were never healthy voices from, like you said, the bully voices from gosh, the church, anything negative that I could, could place on myself. That was shame because as a one, you're always striving to be perfect. And so for the longest time, what I didn't realize is shame was almost feeding that sense of perfection was, Hey, here's something else to strive towards. Hey, here's something else to work towards. Shame was almost the marker for me. I was trying to meet it and then push through it. And I couldn't do either of them because it it does some serious damage to your soul. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So walk us through a few other chapters, if you would. Oh yeah. I'm going to try to think of, (laughs) I think one where people just laugh and, and, but, but it makes total sense. I, I talk about the flight from Atlanta to Denver for mine and Josh's honeymoon. So the morning after our wedding, I wake up with like 101 fever. I have, I have the chills. I have the aches. I am sick as a dog. And I'm thinking to myself, no, (laughs) this is not how you spend your honeymoon. This will not be fun. And coming from good old Georgia, my great grandparents used to run an illegal distillery. And when I was little to cure a cold, I would get a shot of liquor with peppermint and honey. So I'm on this plane. I haven't eaten anything all morning because I feel so gross. I haven't drank anything and I'm not much of a drinker anyway. So put all that together, I weighed about 110 pounds, so pretty small. 
I end up taking several shots of the Jack Daniels that kept coming up and down the cart because I thought this is going to fix this. This is a fast fix. It always worked as a child. It will work now. Granted, the fever broke pretty quickly, but I was a drunken idiot. I (laughs) apparently, you know, I yelled at my husband. I went to the bathroom and had to whack people's heads from aisle to aisle, trying to claw my way to the bathroom. So it was this tragic start to a honeymoon, which is, you know, a funny story for my husband, but the concept is that fast fixes don't work. And I think oftentimes we try to, to patch a wound rather than clean it and let it heal because cleaning is the hard work. That's where it stings. That's where it burns. That's where it bubbles. That's where you have to see the actual issue. And for me, you know, on the airplane, that was almost the band-aid fix to the sickness and you can't band-aid loneliness. You can't band-aid mental health struggles you have to actually call out the wounds for what they are and do the work to clean them and find some healing. Very good. So mm-hmm. at what point did you, what, at what point did your husband read the book? <laughs> okay. So here's the funny thing. He does not read. He will audiobook things. He will read articles on Facebook. He has not actually read the full book. It's more of, I've talked him through each chapter and talked about it so much that he knows the book. And, and the running joke now is, well, you know, babe, at least that season that was terrible for you, it got you a book. Like there is, there's the light at the end of the tunnel, the gold nugget to all the digging and the misery. So he's grateful that a hard season actually turned into something beautiful in my life. Um, Was there anything that surprised him? Yes. (laughs) I guess, you know, I shared my story about OCD and being diagnosed And something that surprised him within that present time was I I called him, you know, because we'd only been married at this point, maybe about a year and a half. And I'm thinking I have to call my husband and tell him I have a mental disorder. What is he going to think of me? This is not something he bargained for. What's going to go through his head. And so I said, um, Hey, I have OCD. And I was also diagnosed with anxiety and secondary PTSD. My dad had PTSD from the military while I was growing up. And so I just spill all this and he's on the other end of the phone in Indiana. And he goes, Oh, thank goodness. And I'm like, thank goodness. Like they just told me something's wrong with me. And he said, I thought it was me. I just thought I was the reason you were just crying all the time. You were worried all the time. I thought you were going to leave. And so that's what's so funny is one of the most surprising things within the book as we were living it was my biggest fear turned out to be confirmation for him that he and I can make it through this. It wasn't a him issue. Him being gone was not actually the issue. It was, I not only was facing a tough season of loneliness, but I literally had undiagnosed mental health problems thrown in the mix. And so now we could come together because I didn't have to blame him for my issues. Like, oh, Josh is gone. This is his fault. He didn't have to carry that weight. And together we could tackle the mental health part of things. Very interesting. Can I say it's so three to think it you're involved in it? Wow, good. It's <laughs> oh, not oh, me. He loved it. He loved it. He, <laughs> he sends me YouTube videos to this day about OCD. He loves it. He thinks he is his own form of therapy for me. And so I just, I let him, he loves it. He's very Um, gracious to me. And so I let him stay as involved as he would like. Very good. (laughs) Well, tell us about community and the role that that can play in everyone's overall health. And I know that, I mean, you know, just like we started with, we met through the Facebook pilot wife groups and as many people have, 
on the podcast, listening to the podcast, and that's a part of community. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So I guess with community, it almost aligns with the little tag on my book. So the title's not so by myself, but the subheader is actually my favorite. And it's a safe space where God doesn't fix the loneliness, but sits with you instead. You know, just saying, hey, look, tough seasons are going to come and they are not going to go away at the snap of a finger, at the swipe of a card, after one simple prayer. And you need God and you need people in your corner through the season. And so that's, that's what I realized while I was by myself is it wasn't just, Hey, you should go get coffee with a friend to get out of the house. It was, you need someone that you can look at in the eyes and say, I'm not okay. And they will sit there and they will listen. Or they honestly, they love you enough to call you out when they're saying, Hey, you're not in the right here. And so community became vulnerability for me. It became a place where I was free to mess up. I was free to not be okay because these people were not only in my corner, but they loved me enough to constantly push truth to me as well. And so that's another chapter in the book. I, I dedicate it to a friend of mine named Wendy, who she also has OCD. She's the reason I went to therapy. She was a wonderful encouragement for me. But there were two or three times where I got coffee with her in that season. And she just looked at me and she would just say, I hadn't even spoken to her yet one day. I was just sitting down at the coffee table. And she goes, what's wrong with you? You're not okay. She said, you've lost two or three pounds since I've seen you last. Your hand is shaking like crazy. What is wrong with you? And community for me is that it is loving someone enough to go into the trenches and to dig with them. Were you comfortable immediately answering her question, honestly and authentically, or did you hold (laughs) back with that one perfectionism, like never let them see you sweat kind of thing? Right. Yeah. So, so the immediate reaction was, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm perfect. I handle things well. Um, but also my brain was going, yeah, you're not handling this well, but the one in me was saying, but we're going to let people think we are. So for the first five, six, seven seconds, I kind of laughed it off. But she had this, she's a one too. So we're, we're almost twins, but she looked at me and she just shook her head. She's like, no, you're not like, what is wrong? She not in a pushy way, not in a hateful way, but she loved me enough to keep going there, to dig deeper, to ask me questions that I couldn't shrug off or laugh off. And I literally had no choice, but to just say, no, things are not okay. I am not doing okay. And she looked at me and she, she said, gosh, I am so sorry. I can't imagine being in your shoes. And that's nothing wild. That's nothing poetic. People have said that for decades, centuries, but someone loving me enough to, to not only ask, but to recognize the bravery it took just to be in that season, even if I didn't want to, that gave me a sense of encouragement that gave me a sense of pride, not in an unhealthy way, but I had been so humbled in this season that that gave me an ounce of hope that maybe I was taking up space. Even if it felt like lonely space, I was taking up space that mattered. Did you let it all out to her? Did you pretty Mm -hmm. much give it all up? (laughs) Because she had been so vulnerable with me. Uh, We had only been friends for maybe two or three years. Her husband worked for the Falcons with my husband. So that's Uh how we met. But she had become so open and honest with me about her OCD and about when things are hard for her that I felt like if she was showing up for me in such a way that came from pure love, it would be, it would be wrong, just, just straight up wrong for me 
to not give her the same love and respect and to invite her into my space. Like she had invited me into hers. And how did you feel after you let that go? I felt better. And, and I didn't think I would, it, it wasn't shame. It was not shame because she spoke such light into me that I felt hope. And I didn't feel a lot of hope in that season being by myself. And so in a way that was kind of up there with Zoloft. Like it, it gave me some endorphins that actually didn't go away. Nice. So what encouragement do you have for other pilot wives and, and anyone out there listening who is dealing with loneliness, um, whether it's in a relationship and marriage, if it, whether it's due to, you know, their partner being gone. Um, I mean, you can be in a crowded room and still feel lonely. Right. We all know that. So what, 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 what's, what encouragement advice do you have? I think the first piece of advice I have is to call it what it is. I didn't want to admit that I was lonely because I was supposed to be taking care of things. I was supposed to be woman of the year, the champ. And I finally had to say, no, I'm lonely. I'm miserable. I'm not okay. I'm not doing well. And so you got to call it what it is. And then you have to sit with yourself and you kind of have to let the monsters jump over the shoes, climb their way through the sweaters. And you've got to see which pieces of your life you haven't unpacked that you need to because you deserve to be there for yourself. You deserve healing. You deserve to understand the space you take up and why you matter. And so that's, that's the advice I give. But as far as encouragement, I just, I love to let women know. I mean, I know there's husbands out there whose wives are pilots, but for women, I think we try to balance perfection a lot, the appearance. And I just say that perfection and grace can't coexist. They are not synonymous. You've got to pick one and one's going to leave you exhausted. One is never going to satisfy and the other will literally give you peace at night. And it'll give you this wild, beautiful ability to give other people grace too. I love that. It's beautiful. So how do we order the book? Yes, I would love for you to order the book on Amazon. That's a very quick way to get it. Prime's available. So just Amazon, not so by myself, Peyton Garland. But also if you want a signed copy, one that I can personalize and send to you, if you'll just go to my website at PeytonGarland.me, there's a link right there that says book and you can order your signed copy. I love that. And all of that will be in the show notes. So if you're walking, awesome. driving, on your Peloton, whatever it is, <laughs> listening to this, um, you can just circle back and click on the show notes and we'll have that. Well, Peyton, it's been certainly a pleasure to get to know you, um, to experience this time with you. You're a lovely human being. And I really appreciate you taking the time, A, to write the book, B, to be so vulnerable, and C, to come on here and share um, encouragement and your story and, and some words of wisdom and advice for anyone else dealing with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's an honor to share this space with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. What a great show and really addressing the topic of loneliness. You know, as I mentioned, we can be lonely in a crowd full of people. And so I think it's important to note that it's not only normal, it's natural. It's a season of life that comes and goes with different things that we experience. And the biggest thing is to, as I like to say, the, the three, the triple A's, as I call them, if you go to pilotwifechecklist.com, you can get that checklist. And that's key. Number one in your life are the triple A's. And that is awareness. Um, acknowledgement and acceptance. And it's learning to use those coping tools to move through all of that. So get the book, Not So By Myself, and we'll see you on the next show. If you like what you're hearing on the show, grab the Pilot Wife Checklist at pilotwifechecklist.com. 
And if you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, go to ask.pilotwifepodcast.com. Share the show with any pilot wives, military wives, or anyone in aviation you know who might share and benefit from this similar experience. I'll see you on the journey.